please turn in your Bibles to the book of Jude. It's the second last book in the Bible. So if you find yourself in Revelation, flip one page before and you will get there. As you're turning there, I'd like to tell you a story about a camping trip that Aaron and I took last summer. Uh, So last August, Aaron and I went on a backpacking trip to Frontenac Provincial Park just outside of Kingston. And uh, the night before we left, we got together to kind of like figure out what gear we had and what we needed to bring. It was just going to be one night, and the trip we planned was like, I don't know, 4 or 5K or something of a hike, so uh, not too hard. And so because of uh, it was one night, and because we were only doing a short trip, we're like, let's bring some extra stuff, like some creature comforts. Cast iron pan, full size? Sure, why not? It's just a 4K hike. Uh, an extra tent just in case my hammock doesn't work out. Now, why not? It's just, it's a short hike. We don't have to worry about it. We ended up carrying way too much stuff, but it was going to be fine because it was just a short hike. And so we leave in the morning, we get to the park the next day, and we start on the trail and we realize about halfway through that this is my fault. I was going to say we, but I changed it to I because it was my fault. I planned the trip. Uh, that I had misread the map and also the online articles, and it wasn't really a 4K hike, it was more like 12 each way. And so it took us like, I don't know, like six hours to get to the spot, up hills, down hills, roots everywhere, trying to break our ankles on the way with this stinking cast iron pan in my backpack. And we got to our campsite finally, and we're just like dog tired. And so we set up camp, and I think we both took like a two-hour nap right away. Um, anyways, went to sleep that night, hung out. The next morning, we get up just like dreading what we had to do. So sore, so tired. Our water filter was clogging at half a water bottle in, and so it just took so long. Anyways, we start on the trail. And it was about 140% humidity and what felt like 125 degrees Celsius that day. And it, was, it was a brutal trek back to the car. There was, there was more hills on the way up, on the way back than down, it felt like. And the only thing that got us through the last probably two hours of that trip was the vision of an air-conditioned car waiting for us in the parking lot. That was the only thing we talked about. It was just silent grunting and complaining, and then, but there's a car with air conditioning in the parking lot. We can do this. And that was the thing. Our minds were on anything else but this car with air conditioning. And so it's that kind of focus, that single-minded, blinders-on focus that Jude calls his readers to have on the Lord. Despite facing difficult circumstances, despite false teachers trying to lead them astray and scoffers trying to come in and distract and divide the church, Jude concludes his letter by calling them to keep their eyes fixed on the God of now and forever. And so we're going to be looking particularly at the last two verses of Jude this morning, but for some context, I'm going to read the entire letter and I invite you to follow along with me. Starting in verse 1, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. 
Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and, des- and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality, pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious one. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. These people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden feasts at reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. The tone that Jude ends his letter with is so 
incredibly hopeful in light of the rest of the content of it that it's almost jarring. He's just come from warning the people about the dangers of false teaching and these scoffers that come in to divide and distract them. This incredibly weighty call to keep themselves in the love of God. He set the stakes extremely high and he has called the church to meet them. And so what does he do after all of this? He turns their attention to their great God. What Jude has done here is to call the church to keep their eyes fixed on the God of now and forever. The God that makes all things possible. The God that is able to keep them from stumbling. Who is able to present them to himself with great joy. He turns our attention to God's glory and majesty and dominion and authority. He turns our attention to hope. And so this is the big idea of Jude's doxology. Keep your eyes fixed on the God of now and forever. Keep your eyes fixed on the God of now and forever. And so look at that first phrase in verse 24. Now to him who is able. God is able, and that's the first point. He is able. As we continue to read, we'll see what he's able to do. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. He's able to keep you from stumbling. And so, to be clear, we don't want to soften the term stumbling to something that it doesn't mean. Let's be clear that the term stumbling, he he means to sin, to miss the mark, to disobey, to do what we want to do instead of what God wants us to do. But God is able to keep us from falling into sin. What this doesn't mean, however, is that when we become Christians, that we don't have to worry about sin anymore, that we just get, uh, we just all of a sudden stop sinning. All of us in this room sin all the time. We disrespect our spouses with wandering eyes. We lose our temper and yell at our kids. We all know the sin in our own hearts more than anyone else does. So if if I sin, but God is able to keep me from sinning, how do I reconcile these things? We have to note the eternal, long-sighted perspective of Jude's doxology. Jude is talking about what God can do now and what he will do forever. And so when he says to keep you from stumbling, Jude is talking about in an ultimate sense. God is able to keep us from permanently falling away from the faith. And if you are genuinely a Christian, you will persevere in your faith until the end of your life because God is able to keep you from stumbling. That word to keep also means to guard or to protect. And so if you have been saved by God, you are protected by him too, forever. John 10, 29 says that no one is able to snatch us from the Father's hand. No one. 
because he is greater and he is stronger than anyone and anything that exists and he is able to keep you from stumbling. This idea of, of keeping has been prevalent throughout the entire letter. I, I hope you've seen that. In verse 1, he, he says, To those who are called and beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. And then in verse 21, he says, Keep yourselves in the love of God. Now he concludes with, To him who is able to keep you from stumbling. And so, these ideas of, of God keeping us versus keeping ourselves in the love of God, are they opposed to each other? No. It's a two-way street. We keep ourselves in his love, and he keeps us from falling away. Ultimately, however, we as the church will obey this call to keep ourselves in the love of God because God enables us to do it. So take courage and comfort in this, friends. Your faith is not dependent on how good you are at being a Christian. It doesn't depend on your willpower to be a perfect person. It depends on God who will keep you from stumbling, and that is a guarantee. He is also able to sanctify. So kids, listen up. This is a big word, sanctify. To be sanctified is the process of the Holy Spirit making us more like Jesus. To be sanctified is the process of the Holy Spirit making us more like Jesus. So kids, when your parents ask you this afternoon, what is sanctification, what does sanctify mean? You can tell them that it's the process of the Holy Spirit making us more like Jesus. So where are we getting sanctification from? Well, the very next phrase, after keep you from stumbling, he says, and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To present you blameless. Like we just talked about, sin is a reality in all of our lives. We still sin, and unfortunately, we continue, we will continue to do so. Until we die or until Christ returns. However, Jude says that one day we will be presented blameless in the Lord's presence. So how do we get from here, Christian who sins, to there, a Christian who is blameless? Sanctification is the answer. As we keep ourselves in his love, and are kept from stumbling, we go through this refining process of sanctification. What sanctification often looks like broadly is that sin slowly loses grip on our lives. Sometimes, however, it can look like this radical uh, time of life where God just rips you open and reveals this gross sin in your life and you experience periods of rapid heart change. Christians in the room, think back to what sins you struggled with a year ago or five or ten years ago. Do they still have that same power in your life? Chances are that if you have been truly 
struggling against these sins in pursuit of God, that no, sin doesn't have the same power over you, the same appeal. You aren't perfect yet, but you're better than you were before. And if you are, praise God who is able to sanctify you by his spirit and mold you into the person that he wants you to be. Just because you're a Christian doesn't make you sinless, but you should sin less. For some of you, though, this, uh, this talk of sanctification might be a bit discouraging. Maybe you feel like you sin even more than you did last year, that it has even more power over your life than it did a year ago. It's, it's like, it's overwhelming and you can't get over it. You, you pray and you try and, and maybe you've made promises to yourself and to God that you won't sin, you won't fall for this sin anymore, but it just isn't working. To you, sanctification seems like a gift for other people, but uh, maybe not for you. Maybe you even, maybe you're even doubting if you're truly saved because aren't we supposed to be getting better as Christians, not worse? Brothers and sisters, let me encourage you for a moment. The process of sanctification is not linear. It's not uh, predictable in the sense that, you know, last year I struggled with 10 sins. Now this year it's nine, next year should be eight. It's very up and down. It's, it's more like two steps forward and, and one step back. And if you happen to be in a place right now where sin in your life feels out of control, more so than last year, that, that can be a normal part of the Christian life. Don't give up. God is not done working with you. He is still sanctifying you, even if it doesn't necessarily feel like it right now. Keep fighting and keep your eyes fixed on the God of now and forever. And something else that you should be encouraged by is the fact that you are actually struggling with sin. If you're actively struggling against sin in your life, that's a sign that the Holy Spirit is working in you. It's far better to be fighting against it than to just kind of passively let it take root and overwhelm you. What should worry you a lot more is if you recognize sin in your life but you don't really care. Apathy is an incredibly dangerous place to be. So that struggle, it, it isn't out of the norm. It's a normal part of the Christian life here and now. And so listen to what Paul, a Christian that we all look up to, has to say about his own process of sanctification in Romans 7, 18 and 19. He says, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Paul, just like the rest of us struggled with sin in his 
process of sanctification wouldn't it have been any less up and down than ours is. And so if you're feeling discouraged about your spiritual growth, I would just encourage you to double down in fighting against sin by prioritizing your Bible reading and your prayer life. I'd encourage you to bring other people into your life who will be brutally honest with you and whom you can be brutally honest with. In James 5, he writes, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And don't take your eyes off the God of now and forever who loves you and who is able to sanctify you. Someday he will present you blameless before the presence of his glory and that will be a day of great, great joy. God is able to keep us and to sanctify us. He is and he will keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Christian, that day when we stand before the presence of his glory will be such an overwhelmingly joyful moment for us, yes, but infinitely more joyful for God. It will be the moment when he finally finishes his divine plan of redemption that he set in motion before the, for thousands of years ago and that he's known about since before the beginning of time. It will be the day when he's no longer separated from us in any sliver or sense of the word. We will be with him in his presence. Just think about that for a moment, church. One day you will stand before the presence of an infinitely glorious God and you will be filled with more joy than you have ever felt in his, because in his presence, his glory is so all-encompassing, so infinite, so mind-blowing that your mind won't be able to handle any other thought than the indescribable joy that comes from being with your Savior. And that joy you feel will be exponentially overshadowed by the joy he has that his children, his sons and daughters for whom he has wept for and bled and died and risen for are with him. What great, great joy. And in that moment, we will have the fullest understanding of what our second point is that he is matchless. He is matchless. There is nothing like our God. There is no one like him. His glory is infinite. His love is beyond understanding. His holiness is spotless. His beauty is incomprehensible. All of who he is is forever beyond what our tiny minds will ever understand. But in that moment, standing in the presence of his glory, we will know more about him than ever before. What great joy. So read with me once again, verse 25. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now 
and forever. Amen. This, this single verse is packed with truths that we could spend the rest of our lives digging into, uh, but we have a few minutes, and so let's get going. He begins, verse 25, to the only God. God is matchless because he is the only God. There is no one like him. There is nothing like him. We can't compare anything to him. He is so unlike anything that we know that every metaphor that we try to come up with to describe his triune nature, for example, basically ends up being heresy. He is not like water with three states of matter because water can only be one of those things at a time, but God is simultaneously Father and Son and Holy Spirit. He is not like an egg with a shell and a white and a yolk because those things are separate in substance, but all three persons of the Trinity are equally God. He's not like a three-leaf clover because all three persons are so completely united with one another that they can't be separated. And that is just one point about God that we can't understand fully. Do you know what God is like? He's like God. There is nothing and no one that compares to him. He is the only God. There are no other gods. He is matchless because he alone is God. Jude goes on, our Savior through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He's not only matchless because he alone is God, but he alone is our Savior and our Lord. A God that magnificent and matchless cares about you, enough about you, to save you from death. Have, have you stopped recently to think about how absurd that is? We don't, for example, like we don't care whether ants live or die. We, we just kind of ignore them and let them do their own thing until they start building ant hills on the driveway and we kick them down. And the difference between us and an ant is huge, but it's measurable. The difference between us and God is immeasurable because he is infinite and we are finite. And a God that, and that God that is infinite loved us so much that he gave his only son so whoever believes in him wouldn't die but would have eternal life. Would you give up your child to save the life of an ant? No. Not even, it's not even a second thought. It's a ridiculous idea to even think about that. But God gave us Jesus Christ, his son, our Lord, who lived and died, was buried, and then was raised to life so that we can have eternal life. God doesn't do this because we are special compared to ants. He does this because he is loving and gracious. And through this, he displays the riches of his mercy to all of creation. As, as our Lord, we get to follow his will and his mission, giving our lives real purpose and direction. He tells us what to do, and we have the absolute privilege of submitting to his leadership as our Lord. 
He is matchless because he is our Savior and our Lord. Next, Jude says, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory and majesty. He's matchless because he is glorious. We can't even add to his glory or majesty because he already has all of it. And yet Jude here is ascribing these things to him. John Piper has a lot of, probably too many great quotes about the glory of God. Here are two. God's glory is the radiance of his holiness, the radiance of his manifold, infinitely worthy, and valuable perfections. He's also said, the vindication of God's glory is the ground of our salvation and the exaltation of God's glory is the goal of our salvation. The glory of God is every part of who he is publicly displayed to all of creation. His glory is the ground, the basis of our salvation, and it is the goal of our salvation. In other words, our purpose on earth, most distilled to its basic form, is to make his glory known in all of creation. The Westminster Shorter Catechism nails this in its first question. It says, what is the chief end of man? It is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That is what we exist for, to ascribe all glory and all majesty to God because that is who he is and that is what he deserves. Next, he's matchless because he is sovereign. Be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. Dominion and authority, two words that carry a lot of baggage with them. Authority is, is so often misused and in in the damage that comes from domineering authority has been catastrophic throughout all of history. Perhaps you've lived through situations where authority was mishandled and abused and you've been left with deep wounds finding it difficult to trust anyone. And if you're really honest, maybe even God as an authority figure. But the Bible frames authority in a much different light. Authority, when used properly under the delegation of God, is a very good thing. There are tons of examples in the Bible of good authority. Parents discipling their children. Elders leading their church. Kings leading their nation in a way that honors God. But all of us, and whatever authority we have, all humans, with whatever authority they have, fail in some way. And so there is no better authority figure to be under than God. As we've been talking about, he is glorious. He is our savior. We can trust him completely with everything because he is in control. He will never abuse his authority. He will never abuse his dominion. 
And if, if you've been the victim of, of poor leadership and have suffered for it, there should be nothing you want more than for God to be given all dominion and authority because there is no one safer to serve and follow and submit to. As sinful humans, we are far worse at leading ourselves even than God is at leading us. People that end up with themselves as the final authority in all areas of their life always end up as complete disasters. We're far better off with God being in charge than ourselves. And so as believers, we can ascribe not only all glory and majesty to God, but also all dominion and authority to him because we trust with full confidence that he will lead us for our own good and his own glory. Finally, he says, before all time and now and forever. Finally, God is, is matchless because he is eternal. Notice that triad of, of past, present, and future, before all time, now, forever, This means that all of who God is as the only God, as our Savior and Lord, the most glorious, most majestic, most sovereign, most wise, most loving God, all of these things have always been true, they still are true, and they will continue to be true for the rest of eternity. God is unchanging. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is matchless because he is eternal. He has always existed. He never began. He has just always been. And this is something that is utterly impossible for us to wrap our minds around. Having no beginning. Because everything we know has a beginning. We were all born on a certain point, a certain day in history. Some of you more historic than others. Companies write established in on their doors. The world has a beginning. Everything we know has a beginning. But not God. He has always existed as the matchless, glorious, sovereign, loving, wrathful, perfect God that he is now. And he will continue to do so for the rest of eternity. Revelation 1.8, God says this about himself. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who was, who is, and who was, and who is to come. The Almighty. And, and so what's the application in all of this? What do we do with all of this high-level theology that seems so hard to grasp? We worship. The only thing on the to-do list from this sermon, from the doxology of Jude is to keep your eyes fixed on the God of now and forever in every area and moment of your life. When life is difficult, keep your eyes fixed on him. When life is good and you are tempted to forget why it is good, keep your eyes fixed on him. When you are tired or angry 
or discouraged or rejoicing, keep your eyes fixed on the God of now and forever because when we turn our gaze up from the daily grind of life, we get something that we don't receive anywhere else. Hope. God's matchless eternality is precisely why we can put all of our hope and trust in him. If he has been good to every single one of his children throughout all of history, he will continue to be good for the rest of eternity. And so the reason that Jude chooses to end his letter in this way is so important. The reason it contrasts so starkly with his warnings of false teaching and difficulty and enemies coming into the church to divide and distract and destroy. It it paints the Christian life as a dangerous and difficult one. If you were to read verses 1 to 23 of Jude, it's not a very good sales pitch. And he's right. The Christian life is inherently not an easy one. It's a daily denial of self and embracing of Jesus in his way. Don't miss the weight of of Jesus' words when he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. There will be people who try to lead you astray. There will be people who hate you and what you believe. Satan and his demons will try to attack you and knock you down. There is nothing that should be easy about the Christian life, but Jude ends in doxology, in worship, to turn our attention to the God of now and forever, the God who will keep us from stumbling and will present us blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. And to that God, We say to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And to that we say, amen. Let it be so. He is the God of now and forever who has called us to himself, who loves us, who is keeping us for Christ Jesus. And as we look forward, despite the difficulty and the pain that life brings, as we look forward to that amazing day where we stand in the presence of his glory with great joy, we will weep because finally, finally, we are with our God and he is with us. That is our hope. And that is why Jude turns our eyes there. To conclude with our eyes fixed on the God of now and forever, Here is what Revelation says we have to look forward to. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light.
and they will reign forever and ever. Let's pray. Lord, you alone are worthy of our praise and our worship. And we want to tell you right now how worthy you are. We want to give you all glory, all majesty, all dominion and authority because we trust you. We know that you are good. We know that you will never change. Lord, for those of us who are going through difficulty right now, through trials and pain and struggle, would you comfort us with your word? Would you comfort us with your presence and the hope of eternal glory that awaits us? For we know that the sufferings of this present age are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. You are the only God You are our Savior. You are Jesus Christ, our Lord. Keep our eyes fixed on who you are. In Christ's beautiful name we pray. Amen.